When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So 1984, the greatest year in hip hop, greatest records, greatest artists, laid the foundation for everything that came after it. Any debate? I think hip hop will always be a void for the people. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. With me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief, and together... This is our What's the Headline podcast. We got a special episode today. Uh, I'm very, very excited about this. It's the beginning of a new series we're starting. Uh, It's not going to be every week, but from time to time, we're going to um, visit, revisit like classic years in hip hop. And we're going to make arguments for why X year was the best year in hip hop. It's going to be a great debate, not between us, um, you know, but really, I think, you know, for you all, to chime in and you know, join the conversation. Let us know what you think is the best year, what we missed of the year we're talking about. But we're going to start with a very, very special year, 1984. We're going to dig into that. Um, were you even born in 1984? You know what, man? I was born January 7th of 1984. So uh, it's a special okay. year to me, too. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, well... Um, I was actually, you know, this is a very impactful year for me. I was like coming of age at that time and uh, it meant a ton. So I'm really, really excited about digging in from my perspective, having lived through it and hearing your perspective as a person who studied it and a true student of hip hop and understanding the framework that it laid. But um, you actually did a phenomenal article on this back in 2014. If I remember right, it was at my behest. you know, and I think you pushed back a little bit, but then you got into it and you actually put the govy on it instead of <laughs> your mind. Yeah. Um, but you took you, you uh, you know, let's get into it, man. Let's talk about many things. And we got a few themes here we want to go through. So first is the rap album. 1984 was a year where the rap album really started to coalesce. Um, you know, before that you had people who put out what were more like compilations, you know, so Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five had their album, um, you know, with the message on it and, you know, a couple other joints. Curtis Blow had his albums. Um, Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, Sugar Hill Gang. But there was not a real cohesive project where it was, you know, um, a bunch of records recorded, you know, over a specific time meant to be part of one project. Um, and 1984 changed that. First was Run DMC. Um, their eponymous album uh, was um, something that really, really changed my life. You know, um, the style was completely different. You had Sucker MCs um, and, uh, you know, Hard Times. It's like that. Songs that were really just like hard drums and hard rhymes. And, you know, prior to that, you know, there was a lot of synth. It was soul, there were disco samples, things like that. But it really changed um, 
the way that hip hop sounded sonically at that time. But you know, you coming in listening to this later on, what was your impression of that? Did you have a sense of like kind of that shift in, in the culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I did, and it's funny. There's a couple of things that happened, and I just looked today. Um, shout out to Dart Adams, you know, one of the um, peers who I know, like yourself, you know, lived through a lot of this. He wrote a great piece that published at OK Player on 84.2. The day I was born was the day that Hard Times with the B-side Jam Master J charted. It was the first, um, you know, weekly release. And if you know Dart, you know he gets those days right. So I never realized that ahead of prepping for this week. Um, and I'm, I look at my life and I'm like, man, that's kind of ill. Um, but, you know, two things happened that opened me up to the early days of hip hop. Um, I want to say in 1998, and, and you might have been in the Viacom system, but MTV, um, working with Run DMC, Bill Adler, a lot of different people um, created this week or two weeks of programming where they really, they aired Crush Groove. They did a lot of things that put me on as a 13 or 14 year old guy into what was happening at 84. And also I wanna give a special shout out to the, in the beginning there was rap compilation, which I'm sure you remember Def Squad doing Rapper's Delight, but you also had, um, you know, Cypress Hill was on there, Wu-Tang Clan, Snoop Dogg, a host of artists that were the artists that I grew up with that were paying the utmost respect to the classics. So I'm very lucky in that in my coming of age, the same age I was when you were living through 84, my heroes, my favorite MCs of the moment were really taking time out of their careers and catalogs to pay respect. Um, and, and none more than run the MC, which, you know, in my opinion, remained very active into the early 2000s, unfortunately, with the passing of, you know, Jam Master J. But yeah, I mean, the, the beat, the sound of the production change, and, and you can tell me this, but I have to believe that that sound, the way they delivered their rhymes and the beats that they created around them matched a new energy that was going on in the streets. I mean, I know at the time, if I'm not mistaken, you were out in the Midwest, not in New York or anything like that. But it, I feel like hip hop, when it's done right, the music matches what's really going on. And I think that Run DMC's eponymous album had to be that. Tell me if I'm wrong. Well, you know, like I said, I was out in the Midwest, and Indiana specifically, and so we didn't have that kind of energy because, like, it wasn't that hip-hop where I grew up. But, you know, um, everything that I read and understood about that, you know, in the real time is that Run DMC really represented what was going on in Queens, you know, um, from not only the music and the way that they delivered it and just the attitude, but also the look, which we'll get into, you know. Um, but, you know, one of the things about that album is that, you know, like I said, hard drums and rhymes were kind of the driver of the, the sound throughout. Like, and um, Jay's cuts and scratches were also really dope. He had a song dedicated to him, Jam Master Jammin', um, was really just about him cutting. Um, but the other thing is they fused rock music and rock box really kind of like took them through the stratosphere because they started to cross over. Um, and really um, appeal to a suburban audience too. So even though they had that energy that they lived and were, were, were breathing, you know, you know, in the streets in Queens, they also delivered that to the burbs, to the Midwest, to wherever, through vehicles like Rockbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, Rick Rubin deserves a huge shout out there as far as I understand the history, um, you know, in the days leading up to him and Russell, you know, Simmons forming Def Jam, you know, Rick was obsessed with 
a certain kind of rock aesthetic that I don't know if it was in huge vogue. I mean, everyone knows about what Walk This Way with Run DMC did for Aerosmith. But even before that, you know, from what I understand from reading the Beastie Boys books and just watching a host of documentaries and reading is, you know, Rick was into that ACDC, that, you know, stuff that was that that today seems very cool. But I have to imagine at a time of, you know, new wave and 80s pop was kind of off to the side. So to grab those, you know, you know, guitar stabs and drums and different things like that and kind of put it in a pot and make gumbo out of it with run dmc had to just be incredible and it gave them their aesthetic because let's not forget either um you know rev run came up as curtis blows dj so he was already around and kind of participated in that disco inspired era of rap and at the same time came out with his own sound you know yeah run was uh, known as son of curtis blow you know mm-hmm. uh, now the other thing the album had uh which i think gets slept on is it had a socially conscious aspect to it too you know, songs like Hard Times touched on what was going on, um, you know, um, songs like 30 Days, and then It's Like That, yeah. you know, um, I don't think Run DMC gets enough credit for, you know, breathing that kind of like, you know, truth from what was going on and, you know, in the streets and for Black people um, that, that they brought to that music. So really amazing album, you know, and we talked about how they shifted the sound of hip hop. There were other groups out there, too, though, who kind of held on to what had, you know, been um, the most popular hip hop, you know, putting the message aside before that, which is more of a kind of a disco, soulful type feel. Uh, and they, they, they took it and like put it on steroids. So one of those was Houdini. We just lost Ecstasy, you know, phenomenal MC, um, just um, end of last year. But Houdini, their album Escape, was also just like an unbelievable sonic masterpiece. You know, uh, it was Larry Klein, right? Who um, Larry Smith? Larry Smith. Larry Smith, who uh, was the um, producer on a lot of that, but you know, a lot of keyboard, a lot of synth, a lot of soul, and you know, songs like Escape, Freaks Come Out at Night, Five Minutes of Funk, um, really, really tapped into that big, almost kind of disco sound. But you know. That is a very, and you not being an R&B dude, like how did that music impact you when you heard it? I mean, you know, I uh, I love Houdini. And it's so interesting because, um, you know, Escape is not their first album. You know, they came out um, a couple years prior, um, you know, and, and you would know better than I would, but it had tepid, tepid success. And then came and made a really cohesive album with Larry far more involved. And for me coming into it, it's, fun. again, I mean, you know, you had artists like Tupac that multiple times in his career um, paid homage to friends. You know, DJ Premier, who's one of my musical heroes, you know, has always talked about the tremendous impact that Five Minutes of Funk had on him. Um, and what I think is so interesting about Houdini, true of Run DMC too, is these are fully formed songs, which I know you obviously get with, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and you get with Sugar Hill Gang. But, you know, we know these choruses just as well as we know the verses. And, you know, hip hop is clearly mapping its own its own thing. But to your point, never veering um, too, too far from R&B in some cases or in some other artists that we'll talk about electro or freestyle, you know, other other different kind of movements happening on happening in music. Houdini's excellent. And I think that um, Escape, like Run DMC, it's interesting that here we are. Um, well over 35 years later, and we're talking about these, we're talking about album cuts in some cases. 
you know, not every great single got a music video, but you mentioned 30 days. Like I listened to it a bunch in the last week and we know that record. I know that record, even though this was the year I was born. Um, so that's a special quality in rap that I don't know if it exists with some of those artists before 84 or their albums, you know, everyone knows rappers delight, but I don't know that people know sugar Hill gang deep cuts unless you live there. And that was the only album you had and you just had by proximity and exposure to it. But in 84, um, and you know, there's other cases we're going to talk about the fat boys in a second where that's, that's just so true. Yeah. You know, you talk about um, Houdini's early work. Um, one of the first songs I've heard from them and, and maybe their first single, um, you know, was um, calling Mr. Magic's Wands, uh, which is a song dedicated to Mr. Magic, legendary DJ here in New York City, um, and was produced by Thomas Dolby. Um, mm -hmm. People don't don't know that, but you know they had that um, you know kind of like funk disco hybrid. Um, the other thing is that you know their their music, even though it it was endemic to a specific era became timeless it was brought back again and again songs like friends you know people think about Nas's if i rule the world and you know they think lauren hill and like the curtis blow sample but friends was also a big part of the fabric of that you know um of that 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 template you know in terms of production um that's another album that um and they had like some boom bap stuff too like the song big, big mouth was just uh uh, just drums and hard rhymes and, you know, uh, was funny, a lot of humor in it. Uh, but they really represented, if Run DMC was like the grit, uh, Houdini was the gloss, you know, and the two things kind of fit together. It's so interesting about Houdini. One of the things that I never realized, and I think when we talk about, you know, Run DMC is so great because they come and they let you know in every song they're from Hollis Queens, you know, um, even down to, you know, some of the titles that they would come up with. I have to admit, and this might be the blind spot of, of being younger and not living through 84, would you know, did you know when you heard Houdini for the first time that these cats were from Brooklyn? Not at all. Not at all. You know, um, you know, I knew they were from New York. All hip-hop at that point felt like it was from New York. There, were, there was obviously, you know, um, uh, movements, you know, starting to pop up on the West Coast and, and Philly and other places. But, you know, New York definitely kind of ran hip hop at that point. So you just assume they were from New York. But, you know, at that time, you know, not being from New York, you don't really think about the boroughs, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something that Run DMC did, too. You know, so people think about N.W.A. and putting Compton on the map. What Run DMC and then later L.L. did was they put Queens on the map, especially mm -hmm. Hollis, like, you know you knew about Hollis Queens no matter where you were from if you listened to Run DMC's music because they mentioned it in so many of their songs and it was a, a place that felt like somewhere where you wanted to go um, and, and felt like, you know, they were, they were, they were making it like history and, and putting it on the map. So um, Houdini didn't rep their borough that hard so yeah. you can hear from it, you know, but, but with others like Run and DMC, like you, you definitely knew where they were from. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I mean, Houdini, I don't know if they don't exist if we get Jermaine Dupree. And that's not to oversimplify things. But, you know, what I love about all of these groups, you know, Run DMC, you take them out of the equation. Do you get 50 Cent? Do you get Onyx? Do you get, you know, so on and so forth? Maybe even the Beastie Boys, um, who we'll, we'll also talk about. But every one of these groups has family tree impact, both as, you know, label executives, as just drivers of cool and culture, 
Um, yeah. And it's funny because I do think that sometimes the his, that history, you know, I want to talk about the fat boys for a second, looks at them as a little bit of a niche group or a gimmicky group, just given their name, given their personas, given, you know, all you can eat and stuff like that. But um, they're incredible. And we're absolutely one of the stars of 84. Yeah, when you go back and listen to that album, and I, I listen to it regularly, it's it's timeless and it's sound. It's also much more polished in, in the way that Houdini is, you know, it, um, relying on big disco, soulful type beats, but songs like Can You Feel It and, you know, Jailhouse Rap and, and the Fat Boy song itself, yeah. um, just so musical, like, and, and so instrumental. And deceptively, those dudes could rap. I mean... Yeah. You look at Crush Group, which came out a year later. Um, their story is kind of told loosely um, in that they won a, uh, I think they won or they got second place in a talent contest. But in any case, they were good enough to be signed by the, the people doing it. Um, they were initially called the Disco Three, and they, they played on, you know, it's one of the first instances of using image to market yeah. an artist. You know, all these artists came out in a time when music videos were just beginning. And they all had compelling videos that, you know, I still remember to this day. But Fat Boys, um, yeah, music remains timeless. That album was phenomenal. Um, I, I will say it wasn't as strong to me as the other two, like DMC mm. and, and, you know, Houdini Escape. You could put on and, and let them play front to back, even the, the instrumentals dedicated to the DJs. Um, Fat Boys, really, those three songs kind of stick out. And then, like, after that, you know, I think it dips a little bit. But super dope album. Yeah, and I just want to add, too, I mean, you know, the Fat Boys, what they did for beatboxing, which is still, you know, a, a sub-element of hip-hop. And, and you take that out of the equation, not to say that they pioneered it, but to put it in the mainstream like that. Um, you know, just amazing, because even though, you know, I know everyone always goes to Rozelle and, and Bismarcky and some different people, but... Think about how many times, you know, top tier MCs that change culture allude to beatboxing or they choose a beat that's inspired by it. And the Fat Boys, I feel like, put that in living rooms in a way that hadn't been done before. That's just my take. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you just like uh, remind me of two other really dope songs, Stick'em and then mm -hmm. um, Human Beatbox. And so while Houdini and Run DMC had their songs dedicated to the DJ, Fat Boys had their song ded dedicated to Buffy, the Human Beatbox. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, exactly. And he, you know, so Dougie Fresh is one of the pioneers of, of beatboxing, um, obviously did it in Beat Street and was doing it way before that. And Dougie had just, just the illest style, you know, it was very percussion based. Uh, Buffy, like, added that deep bass and like, you know, the, the real, like, you know, boisterous sound to it and just brought a whole different dimension to beatboxing. But very critical to that fat boy sound so we're i have some of the the 12 inch singles that they put out you know on sutra records that were still they were still known as the disco three and you know i'm so glad that they changed their name obviously it had commercial impact people knew they knew the association by the time they got to film um you know they played that persona but those guys do not sound like the disco three and it's another case of you know nardwar and different people in our culture love to ask mcs their first name and most of our great you know, MCs of the 90s and 2000s had a really corny name when they started that was inspired by, you know, the artists that were rocking when they were 10 years old. And I think that's so true of Disco 3. Like, clearly those guys were studying Cold Crush and, you know, the Fearless Four and all those. And they came up with this very late 70s name only to get the rebrand, which, of course, made uh, sense for the time.
Exactly. So, you know, you have videos and um, although they weren't getting play on MTV, uh, there was BET. And uh, at BET, they had video soul. Um, there was no rap city in, in 84, uh, but they did slide in rap videos periodically. So you would often see um, songs like um, Freaks Come Out at Night and Escape. Um, Jermaine Dupree was in, you mentioned Jermaine Dupree, and he was in, um, I believe the video for, it, it, I believe it was Escape was one of those two, it was the one where uh, the tour bus comes and, uh, you know, and they're singing Friends. Mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a glimpse of JD in the beginning, and then UTFO, another like you know seminal like rap group, also was put down by Houdini because they were um, was put on by Houdini because they were uh, their backup dancers and um, freaks come out at night. You know, um, I think they had on red leather. I haven't watched the video in quite a while, so it's yeah, a, um, memory. But um, you know, those dudes like Kango and um, you know. Um, um, uh, the educated rapper and rapper, yeah. yeah but um it's dr ice uh yeah word um were um were dancing you know for houdini so that they, they brought a lot and those visuals were like super super dope and then you had like rock box um and then with, with the fat boys jailhouse rap and can you feel it really showcased their personality and i wouldn't be surprised if those videos uh, because they were so like you know um, such big personalities led to their inclusion in Crush Group because they were really really personable in the videos. Well, I want to ask you too, and I'm I'm purely asking because I didn't live it, but you know '83 Herbie Hancock puts out you know um, Rocket and you know Grandmaster or you know DXT does the scratches. Um, this this benchmark moment for DJs is talked about in the film Scratch. Do you think that that opened up? MTV did you feel it in real time and I don't know if you had MTV growing up I don't know if you were exposed like that but did it did, could you feel the mainstream push more in 84 um even if it wasn't just videos you could I mean like I said Rockbox really did like you know kind of pave the way and the funny thing about Rockbox is um they had the guitarist I forget his name but um they had him come and play a few licks and initially they thought they were just gonna, you know, you know, pull them in and out and like, you know, drop them, but just have, have them be accents. And, uh, you know, they heard it and like, it was going the whole time and somebody made the call, yo, that sounds ill. Let's just leave it like that. But, you know, it became one of those first rock rap records. Um, and we'll get to the BC boys in a minute. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, you said the Rick Rubin influence, but running DMC really, did that and then obviously they they made it um their their trademark later on you know with songs like king of rock and then um walk this way which brought back aerosmith's career mm. but it all started with rockbox so yeah you could feel you could feel the push now did they do it was it a strategic move to crossover i don't know if that was the case i, I think it was more rebellious that they were you know they were the, they were the kings of rock. They could do whatever they wanted to. They had that rock star attitude, and so no one was going to put them in a box, you know. And so rock box, they they opened it up. So I don't think it was a desire to be mainstream, but but it definitely helped with the push. Man, you and I have kicked it with some legends together. Um, you know, when we've been together, and also you know we both have these stories that sometimes we talk about here. But one of my favorite memories is you and I were kicking it in Austin, um, twenty seventeen 
just hanging out in the hotel lobby uh, and we ran into DMC. And, yeah. you know, after 18 years, and I know you and I talk about this, it's rare to, um, you know, kind of get those goosebumps moments meeting your heroes. But I've spoken to Run before. I never, I never knew Jay. Um, but to just kick it with DMC for a minute. Um, yeah, that was, that was one of my favorite AFH memories. Yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy. I'll tell you what did push hip hop to the mainstream though, very strategically. Uh, another great thing about 1984 besides the music was that hip hop went to the movie theaters. There were two uh, really critical movies that came out and in many ways um, they were uh, two different sides of the same coin. So first was Beat Street, you know, um, uh, produced in part, I can't remember if it was producer, yeah, produced, um, Harry, Harry Belafonte, yeah, was a real critical part of that. And uh, starring Radon Chong, you know, who was a very um, acclaimed actress at the time, um, featured the New York City Breakers and a Rocksteady crew. Very, very um, uh, authentic in terms of its representation of what was going on with breaking. Um, DJ Jazzy J was, was featured in it. Um, you had cameo from Treacherous Three, Cool Moldy, and you know, Dougie Freshlight comes in at the end. Um, it was really focused on all aspects of hip hop. So, you know, graffiti, uh, DJing, breaking, break and emceeing, um, and really kind of open up a whole new world for kids all over the country. You know, I remember seeing it in theater uh, at least a few times mm. and I had it on um, beta and then VHS and probably saw Beat Street, I don't know, 40, 50 times, you know. Um, but then the other movie that came out was Breaking and that was West Coast and, you know, uh, sunny and fun and like a lot more like um, locking and popping and like, you know, up work and up rocking and like um, a lot more um, kind of flashy type uh, dancing. Uh, you had Turbo with his broom scene, uh, you know, asking who Gene Kelly is and, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, or Fred Stare and, uh, you know, and, um, you know, it was, they had, they did the Black Eyed Peas thing where they had like, you know, uh, two black men and a white woman, like, you know, um, you know, making it like more mainstream, but um, super dope film too. And, you know, Shabadoo and, uh, you know, another legend we just lost. And it's amazing. We're losing these legends from 1984. Yeah. Was an amazing choreographer and, uh, you know, soul trained dancer, the whole nine um, was Ozone. And then, you know, uh, Michael Boogaloo Chambers was just, Turbo was the illest man. I remember spending many, many days like, you know, in, in the mirror trying to like, you know, mimic those moves, but but super dope. But I did, mean, when did, when did you see those films? Much later. I mean, yeah. probably in my upper teens. Um, and, and I saw them at a time when I was consuming um, just as much culture as possible. You know, and in, in, I remember... Um, you know, 18 or 19, uh, getting a Netflix account when they were a new company and they would mail you the DVDs. And I remember just, you know, boom, you know, wild style, boom, you know, I had seen Style Wars. That was the one that, as we've talked about here, has really been, you know, influential to me first. And then I saw the, you know, theatrical films. But what I wanted to ask you is, you know, you talked about that, that, that knowledge of knowing that hip hop, no matter where was New York, um, so with Breaking, you know, did that give you a greater sense of the differences and the, the landscape of the culture 
you know, in its, in its entirety? Yeah, much more so. You know, it was really, you know, they were just such different films. You know, uh, Beat Street was really meant to be, I think, authentic and gritty and in some ways felt like almost like an indie film, you know. Yeah. Spoiler alert, but like the, the lead character dies in the end. I mean, like, you know, it was not like a happy-go-lucky film. We had Grandmaster Melly Mel doing the eulogy with, with Beat Street, um, you know, uh, at the end. Um, it was a really, really um, dark kind of movie, especially for like teenagers at the time. You weren't used to like, you know, having the main character die. Um, Breaking was Hollywood, you know, and everything that LA, you think that LA is, it was sun and fun and, um, you know, the, the good guys won in the end and they give it, you know, they, they stick it to the man and like, you know, teach them that like street dancing is, is legit and then they get the big like you know broadway type show like it's a it's a it's it's super super hollywood you know yeah. um, but it did open my eyes that breaking was a national phenomenon like i said it inspired me to 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 break it inspired like all sorts of competitions i remember going to competitions in the mall dudes were actually really good like you know just killing it like it spawned a whole phenomenon um you know and um yeah, it really brought hip hop to the mainstream and showed that it was it was nationwide, if not global. You know, you mentioned Melly Mel, and one of the things that I think, as a student of '84, that is so interesting, and we see this at other times in hip hop. I think we often see it when hip hop's at its best. But you know, we're going to talk about some of the emerging voices that came out of '84, even if they didn't get albums. But you, you know, you mentioned Melly Mel, um, you mentioned Jazzy J, and one of the great records of 84 is It's Yours by Tila Rock. And I think that saturated itself over the next year or two, but it came out, you know, Party Time Records 84. You had, we talked about Larry Smith, you had these OGs that had been actively involved in hip hop, you know, in the 70s, in the late 70s, early 80s, and they were, you know, they still had a part to play. Um, you know, Curtis Blow had come out as, like you said, a, a, a disco tinged, you know, hip hop act, but he put out, you know, arguably his best album in 84, Ego Trip, and showed that even five years after the breaks, he was evolving and he was in step with the times. And I know his own fashion aesthetic kind of changed, but it's cool that there's um, just this intersection. And one of the things that, you know, you and I hold so dear is that generational conversation it's one of the, you know, inspirations of Ambrosia for Heads. So to see it happen in real time then where you have all of these cool and interesting groups coming up, but at the same time, the OGs are respected, they're involved. You mentioned Colmo D and Treacherous 3, you know, they put out an album in 84 in large part, it was a compilation of what they'd done prior, but all of these forces are at play and coexisting and kind of working together. And if you look deeper, you know, from Houdini into UTFO, from Curtis Blow into Run DMC, there's all of these bridges, which is, um, I just, I, yeah. I love that, you know? That's definitely true, like in hindsight and looking back historically, but at the time, um, you know, at least for me, and I'm going to speculate that it was for the case for lots of other people who were, I was a teenager at the time, and for me, it felt like, um, you know, LL, Run DMC, you know, even Houdini and Fat Boys, it was kind of like a new movement mm. and, you know, just like, you know, uh, and, and just like, you know, uh, younger artists of today, kind of like stiff arm, the previous generation, it felt like that for us too, 
you know, like mm. um, Curtis Blow was cool and everything. Um, but like Run DMC, that's where it is, you know, like it's a new sound, like, and, you know, um, we didn't have the same level of respect for that, you know, for me, you know, Melly Mel, and you know, we listened to the music and everything, but it felt older, you know, mm-hmm. it felt almost like adult contemporary. The new stuff was these guys. And then, you know, don't forget, like, shortly thereafter, you had like KRS One and, and BDP and like, yeah, coming Rakim, out the throats, Rakim and Kane, and like guys who were truly just changing the way that hip hop sounded. Like, the rub, the, the DJ Collective have a phenomenal um, mix series where they do, um, a mix for every year in hip hop from 1978 to like the present. And if you listen to that 10 year block from 1980 to 1990, hip hop radically changes in that time period. I mean, radically. It is, it, in my opinion, it is at least as radical as like hearing like, you know, Trippy Red or Uzi Vert versus like, you know, J. Cole or Kendrick or, you know, Kanye or whoever it might be. Yeah. Like, it's a super, super gigantic shift. And so at the time, even though it was only a couple of years apart, for us, it felt like a generational divide, you know, mm-hmm. um, where these are the, the new artists and this is who I'm rocking with and this is my identity. Yeah, I mean, there has to be, you and I talk about that. I mean, the fact that you were 14 in, in 84, 14, 15, um, and then I look at my life and I was, you know, 14, 15 in, in 98, 99, the era of, you know, Black Star and Common and Moment of Truth and all these different things you hold on to that culture that's happening around you and you really kind of raise it up the flagpole. And there had to be that. I mean, obviously there were B-boys and B-girls that were, you know, 2021 20, that had lived through that other era. But to be part of that record buying, album buying generation, of course, you're going you're gonna to make your stars out of Run DMC, out of LL, Beasties, um, you know, so on and so forth. So let's Let's talk about some of, you know, the folks that maybe didn't get an album in 84. Well, wait, I just want to oh, shout out yeah. one person, though, who was featured in those movies, and that's Ice-T. Mm, word, uh, of course. Ice-T was kind of the resident MC in um, uh, the, the place where they were doing their dancing. And, uh, you know, if you listen carefully, he's freestyling throughout most of the movie. He's freestyling, like, what's happening in the scene and like just incredibly dope and this is bef- this is pre gangster rap ice t electro it, yeah yeah electro he had a song called reckless on the soundtrack and it plays a lot in the movie uh, but he's rhyming different verses to it but it, interestingly uh, most of the dancers featured in breaking were in a documentary called breaking and entering that came out before that Mm. And it's very, you know, there's not a, a ton of storyline or anything like that. It's just like slight interview footage and mostly just like dancing. But Ice-T is interviewed extensively in that. And he's talking about like anti-gang stuff and like, you know, how, you know, the, we need to like clean up the neighborhoods and like, you know, and like bring culture and stuff like that. It's really fascinating to see the way that he's talking in that versus like what he would become and espousing his music just like a couple years later so real real interesting transformation but Ice-T um, became one of my favorite rappers at that time because of Reckless and and what he was doing and breaking and then later like would just crack my cranium with Brian Pace but yeah so yeah Eminem has has said that Reckless was deeply influential to him and shout out to Chris the Glove Taylor who put that you know song out and and the Glove who later you know worked on the Chronic and did a whole host of stuff with Dre and, and, and others. 
um, you know, has been one of AFH's, you know, biggest supporters on the West Coast and just somebody that disperses what we stand for amongst that pioneering community, um, as has ICE. Um, so shout out, you know, to all of those guys. And, and yeah, and I think, I think ICE featured in that movie too, right? The glove, that's him like spinning, right? Um, yeah, with the, with the joint, yeah. Glove. Yeah, it's really dope, really dope. And, and ICE fits into that too, because, you know, 80, uh, Reckless comes out in 84, um, but, you know, that was what I was getting at. You know, you talked about UTFO, the album followed. But, you know, Roxanne, Roxanne is 84, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And obviously, because Roxanne Shantae, you know, and we'll talk about that. But just talk to me of the sense you had for the artists that were on the cusp. Because Crush Groove isn't out yet. Um, but there's these really important integral 12-inch singles that are coming out and, and joints that are, I'm, I'm sure, played on radio. Maybe not where you were, but, you know, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, there's not much I can say beyond the albums because you got to remember, like, rap music was not remotely mainstream at that time. So mm. we didn't have radio there. Like, you know, at best we had like an hour or two on a university um, station, like, you know, a couple nights a week. Um, and then, you know, the music would often take months to find its way to us, you know, into the record stores. We had mainstream record stores. There weren't places you could go and buy 12 inches or things like that. So... Uh, for me, it was mostly the albums and the videos, you know, um, and that was um, the stuff that you were hearing, the stuff we we're talking about was underground at the time, because rap was like a phenomenon that people discounted and continued to say was going to, um, you know, be a fad and, and pass like disco the whole time. So, yeah, I mean, so these were the records, you know, the, uh, you know, I think you had to be in New York in that scene like you know in the clubs and like you know um hearing the mix shows because even in new york like it was just still mix shows right it wasn't like regular rotation or anything like that for rap music uh, so yeah yeah that was it man that was it yeah i mean it's interesting to um just to break it down a little bit you know utfo puts out roxanne roxanne you know incredible record i think it lives up today and um, sometimes I feel like artists were doomed by the labels they signed to, you know, on yeah. one hand you had, um, you know, LL and the Beastie Boys, you know, great, great team around them at Def Jam and obviously Run DMC benefited from that with Russell as management and Rick as producer. Um, but you had UTFO, you know, select records, important label, you know, responsible for Chub Rock, MOP, we can go on and on, but they don't get necessarily the legacy treatment that they deserve. So they put out, you know, arguably their best record um, kind of fits into a lot of what we're talking about in terms of just song structure, catchy, but, you know, lyrical is, is all hell um, in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, was, was an amazing record um, spawned a ton of response records. It was the first time I can remember there being response records, you know, but obviously that would like, you know, lay the foundation for, you know, the bridge wars and, you know, you know, all the disc records that, that we've heard, like, you know, up until then, but Roxanne, Roxanne kind of like laid the foundation for that. One of the highlights of my uh, high school was that I had a cousin who was a DJ at one of those universities. Um, and um, UTFO was actually the first concert I ever saw that came, played in my community center in the gym. And he brought Mixmaster Ice over to my house. Wow. Um, and so Mixmaster Ice was in my house in my living room, like just chilling with my cousin and me. Um, and like it was it was mind blowing to like have someone famous like that, especially with like Roxanne Roxanne in the living room. But yeah, you have records like that. And, you know, that spawned Roxanne Shantae, who um, 
was not the first female MC. Um, you know, you had people before her like Shout Rock from the Funky Floor Plus One and, you know, others, but Roxanne like kind of broke through, you know, yeah. in a way that, and especially as a solo uh, woman MC and being empowered like that and going up against the guys was super dope, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the, uh, there's the biopic, you know, but Roxanne Chante is so interesting because it gives hip hop that real time aspect which undoubtedly existed, you know, in the clubs, you know, we talk about, um, you know, the great battles of the early 80s at Harlem World and, and different places. But Roxanne, you know, and, and you said not the only person to respond to UTFO, but Shantae as, you know, around 14 years old, kind of this piss and vinegar, you know, foul mouth girl who could wrap her ass off comes with Roxanne's revenge, um, yeah. released on pop art, which, uh, you know, shout out to Philly, um, and, and they were putting out, you know, everyone wanted in on the uh, on the record industry, but came out. And, you know, if that battle doesn't happen, you know, I'm not sure that we get the bridge wars, you know, because yeah. that became what the Juice Crew stood for, you know, is like you had Shan versus LL. You had all of this this kind of, you know, elbow jabs. And that would set the tone starting in 84 you know, for the next four years and arguably it exists today because I guarantee you not a month goes by in hip hop without a disc record of some profile. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some records that you had, and well, just one, one last thing about Breaking too is that, um, you know, it brought it to the mainstream seeing those movies. Uh, but then, uh, you know, Breaking kind of faded, interestingly, you know, it is uh, that and graffiti are the two pillars of hip hop culture that have kind of receded to the background and, you know, always present, but, but never um, at the forefront, like emceeing first of all, and then DJing as well. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, here we are, you know, 36 years later and now uh, breaking is an Olympic sport. Like, and mm. so it shows you just, um, you know, the impact that, 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 that had. And, you know, 84 wasn't when it began, but it's definitely when it became, it came to the mainstream for the first time. That's a really dope point. And I was just going to say, too, you know, the DJ shows his and hers, you know, place in the culture in 84 still, you know, it's yours. Like Jazzy J scratching on it is as important to me as, you know, Tila Rock's rapping. Um, you've got these other records, too. You know, Run DMC dedicated a song on their album to Jay, which was a trend that, of course, carried into Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and Gangstar and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, you've got the world famous Supreme team. You've got all of these different entities that DJ culture and rapping are, you know, very much side by side still, which is a really beautiful and important thing. Because a lot of what rappers took from 84, DJs did too. I mean, you go to a DJ battle or you look what the X-Men and the Invisible Scratch Pickles and other people were doing, you know, later on, 10 years later, it was inspired by you know, what these, what these OGs, you know, DXT and, and Jay and so forth were doing, you know, in 84. Yeah. And you had songs like, you know, Twilight 22's Electric Kingdom, which a lot of people, uh, you know, back then called it like Planet Rock 2, you know, like mm -hmm. it had that, that same kind of beat, um, you know, Nucleus came out with Jam on it. And like, that was like, you know, the, the pinnacle of like electro funk, you had a lot of different records coming out, um, you know, songs like Set It Off, um, but Set It Off felt almost more, um, almost like house, Fancy? House, yeah. Yeah, house music more so than, than, than hip hop, but you yeah. know, um, 
you had a real variety of records coming out at that time. So it was a smorgasbord. And um, even though, like I said, there was, it felt like kind of a generational divide, there was still an, an embracing of all different types of hip hop that I find is different than what we have now, where people kind of pick a lane and, and kind of like uh, shun things that aren't, that aren't in that lane. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we should talk about fashion, but real quick, I mean, just, you can't, Def Jam, I think became one of those labels, you know, that people would buy off the jacket, you know, buy off the label itself, which I don't know if hip hop had, I don't know. It's, it's fair. It's unfair for me to speak on it. Maybe Sugar Hill, maybe Enjoy had that for a minute, but Def Jam just became a stamp of dope. And, you know, as I said a minute ago, one of the one of the tragedies of hip hop is so many of the pioneers, you look at Cold, Cold Crush Brothers or once Grandmaster Flash kind of started dealing with Elektra, if you ended up at the wrong label that didn't know how to market you or didn't give you creative control or wasn't down with sampling or forced you into a certain lane, um, 84, you called it a watershed moment of hip hop. That was that was the title we used in that editorial you mentioned. But there were a lot of artists that if you couldn't get over the hurdle of 84, um, it challenged your legacy, I think. And so shout out to the artists, new and old, that were able to weather that storm. And if you didn't, you got your props later on in other ways as the culture had more media around it, et cetera. Yeah, well, we, we alluded to... Um a few artists, you know, but I think we, we dive in, like, um, there were three game changers um, that all came from one label, you know, so, and the interesting thing, is, you know, going back to my point about what was happening on a national scale versus what was happening in New York, um, so you had Tila Rock with It's, with it's Yours, you know, um, many say it's the first Def Jam single, there's been some debate, you know, as of late about that, um, you had LL, uh, coming out with um, I Need a Beat and um, you know he became you know Curtis Blow ladies love Curtis Blow but like you know LL's name literally is Lady Love's Cool Ladies Love Cool J and yeah. Cool James and um, I believe he became the first solo rap superstar and the first um, rap sex symbol you know he had songs like I Need Love you know for the ladies and very much embraced that side of it um, you know, and he was just that 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 came out that year. But again, in Indiana, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, and other places that weren't like major metropolitan areas, you didn't hear those records at that time. You heard know, them a year later. My first, yeah, my first introduction to LL was in Crush Groove when you know he uh, came to the audition and like you know tell him it was like you know it was too late and he was like nah nah and he said box and so you know hearing I can't live without my radio was the first time I heard LL and it changed my life, you know, but he had already had records out that came out in 84. Um, you know, and then the Beastie Boys, you mentioned Rick Rubin and his love of ACDC and their first song, Rock Hard, you know, again, which I had not heard at that time. My, my introduction to them was Crush Groove also uh, with a song called She's On It. Um, and that song, um, Rock Hard, was, you know, ACDC, like uh, Back in Black. Back in Black, yeah. Which, BDP would flip, you know, just a few years later. Yeah. But you had these seminal records coming and all of them led back to Def Jam, you know, um, and Def Jam formed in 1984. And Def Jam, you know, you mentioned profile records, select records, 
Um, Tommy Boy. Yeah. Tommy Boy, all great labels. But I don't know that there is a more important label in rap music than Def Jam, you know, dedicated to rap. You know, all those other labels had other forms of music that they, they, they pushed also. Mm-hmm. Def Jam was just about rap, you know, and about a certain rap aesthetic. You know, it was a purist kind of label. It was raucous before raucous, you know, um, and that label spawned so many you know, artists that like just ran hip hop from Jay to Meth to, you know, to Redman to like, you know, it just goes on. DMX, yeah. Starting in, starting in 1984. It's so important too. And I mean, obviously Crush Groove wasn't out in 84, but I think the idea of knowing who was behind these records uh, besides Blair Underwood, but <laughs> to see, to see Rick. And at that point, you know, I think Russ, you know, his name was on everything. I mean, obviously in New York and around, but, you know, you started to see that Rush management or Russell Simmons' manager everywhere you looked on Honest Hip Hop. But that had to just legitimize because, you know, um, you're not seeing that with a lot of the different, you know, other labels that are putting it out. The Robinson family wasn't out there like that. Tom Silverman was popular in the dance community and, and what he had going on, but you didn't see him in a movie like that. So to have that sense of identity, to have a label, to have that community around you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's huge. And I've been a Beastie Boys fan, you know, um, the Beastie Boys were some of the earliest, you know, I bought License to, uh, not License to, I bought um, Ill Communication in 94 when it came out, the green cassette. And I didn't know about Rock Hard until I read their book last year, because it's not a record that they um, really got behind, I think, in their in their memoir that, um, you know, Ad Rock and, and Mike D put out, they clown the record. They, and then they say, like, we were kind of gimmicky with it, especially in our raps. But that figuring it out on wax is so important. I mean, LL has the benefit of I Need a Beat is a dope-ass record then and now. But not everything, not everything necessarily clicked. And shout out to Def Jam, unlike some labels, that even though that didn't work, they still believed enough to come back in 85 and truly release an album um, by 86 that kept the lights on for the label through some leaner years. Um, so yeah, it's just just a really, really, really interesting time. And even I need a beat, like um, the record didn't hit the way that they wanted to. Um, so they did a different version on the album, you know, but they stuck behind LL. They knew what a star he was. And like I said, that that moment in Crush Group, which obviously is loosely based on, you know, the story of Def Jam, um, was his breakout moment. Like he like he was the highlight of 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 the movie. Like and I remember being in the theater watching that movie and like everyone exploded like after that scene you know like it it was a clear clear moment it was the dawn of a new superstar and even though that was 85 like the fact that ll kind of got his start in 84 just again shows and this is a guy who's got now 36 years in um hosting grammys you know has you know his own tv show has a radio station uh, where radio station. you can yeah. turn in and hear these records where maybe you couldn't before. You and coin a word that is used so liberally now, but the GOAT. Like, I mm. mean, like, you know, I don't remember anyone ever saying that before. And now it's like just common parlance. So, again, framework, you know, of, of what, what was built in 84. But Def Jam is, I, I think, we did, I did a, um, the first year I did AFH, 2010, you know, I challenged myself to do a post a day, like at some point, like in September or so of 2010. 
And what I did was I did a countdown of the 20 greatest rap uh, labels in, in history and, you know, put Def Jam at number one just because of its seminal impact. And I'll, I'll still take that to this day. Like, I don't think there's yeah. a, a greater rap label. And again, started in 84. So, you know, we've talked about music. We've talked about film. Um, one of the interesting things about 84 that I can absolutely speak to is it presented the aesthetic, um, I think, as in two ways. One, um, verbally, you know, and, and I don't know. I, I didn't live through it to tell you where certain phrases started. But I know that in this conversation, as a 37-year-old, I use the word ill. And I still use that word. That's part of my lexicon. Um, and the sneakers I wear, you know, I'm much more likely to wear, you know, some Pumas or some Stan Smiths or, you know, a classic 80s sneaker than I am to go trip out over, you know, whatever, whatever's really hot right now. My own fashion aesthetic came from all of these people that we've mentioned in large part. Talk to me a little bit about how this era of rap, this year of rap, this watershed influenced culture in ways that are tangible into today. Yeah, you know, so first of all, I, I wish that the, I've been trying to bring back the word fresh. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I think I think fresh is, is due for a comeback. So you, you fresh know, is the word. <laughs> fresh is the word. You're yeah. right. Um, the, so the language was definitely part of it. But the fashion, I think, is one of the biggest things, you know, prior to. 84 the biggest rappers looked like rock stars uh, looked like you know like r&b singers there's a lot of leather and lace and like you know feathers and the parliament funkadelic in there yeah 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 the kind of stuff that you might see on a fashion runway but you would never ever see like you know dudes wearing on the street or you get yeah. clowned if you weren't <laughs> artist, you know if you were lucky yeah yeah uh, but then you had run dmc and they step on stage and they rap about you know, wearing not no Calvin Klein's, just wearing leaves, but you know, they're wearing jeans. Uh, they got on um, their leather jackets, they got their their, their hats on, um, and then they got, you know, the chains on, gold chains, and more, most importantly, they got their Adidas on, you know, like, and this is, and now, you know, we obviously know that there that there's a huge, um, you know, fashion connection between hip hop um, and, you know, it drives fashion. There have been gigantic deals like Sean John, you know, uh, Sean Combs just sued Sean John, um, the, the, the label that he started and sold um, for $20 million. Uh, he sold it for, I think, $300 million, something like that. Russell sold Fat Farm for a ton of money. Rock aware. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it all started that nexus with fashion and hip hop started, in my opinion, with Run DMC talking about Adidas and, you know, they would do tours and we'll get to that in a second where they would tell people to put your Adidas in the air and like, like everyone in the entire building would have on their Adidas, you know, like um, classic Stan Smith and uh, with shell toes and superstars, all that. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, that was a complete shift in what it meant to be a star. It, you know, people talk about authentic now and embracing authenticity um, but they lived it. They walked to the stage and what they were, what they got up and put on every day. And it was a complete shift. LL with the track suits and the Kangol's, you know, and like, you know, the gold, gold chain. So it was like, that was the streets like that. They, they, they completely shifted, you know, what people were wearing and how people dressed. So yeah, that was, that was a major, major, major shift right there. 
And what's so dope is, I mean, you know, it didn't happen in 84, but the inroads within a couple of years, there were partnerships made, you know, obviously Adidas groundbreaking work with um, Run DMC and, and later, you know, Jay even gets his own sneaker. Um, you know, LL, I think one of his first sponsorship deals was with Troop, if I'm not mistaken, you know, and then obviously goes on to FUBU and all these other things. But, you know, it started by we're going to show you what's cool. And within the next few years, we're going to, you know, we're going to level up and, and break bread in a way that, that benefits the culture and community, which is so dope. But yeah, I mean, I truly believe that um, the fashion of 84 and that era has endured far more than other eras. And I know this is really about music, but that stands for something for sure, because that's how we see our artists. Those are the photos that we define as cool in our minds and epic and all of these things. And no fashion is, uh, is competing. You rather, what would you rather wear, man? Like a, a Adidas sweatsuit or like a, a, a quadruple XL Knicks jersey, you know? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I know for me, I don't wear my hats to the side anymore like I was doing in, in 98, you know, trying to look like LP. So I try to put on my ex, my ex baseball jersey from 40 Acres and a Mule. Uh, I look insane, dude. I, look like I need to gain about 100 pounds in order to justify it, you know. So, yeah, absolutely, man. The fashion world was amazing. Um, you know, so. Another thing I want to talk about, though, too, is you mentioned cultural moments and how to shift the culture is that um, hip hop hit the road, you know, it became live and direct. And so I mentioned and I've talked a lot about how inaccessible the actual culture was beyond, you know, the breakout records and the videos that I got. But what changed in 84 was, um, you know, the Fresh Best tour. You know, Run DMC, Houdini, um, the Fat Boys, and Curtis Blow. Um, you know, you got these guys going on the road and selling out arenas. That's something that was, had never been done before. You know, like I said, my first concert was in a community center in a gym. But you had, you know, rap at the highest level, selling out Madison Square Garden and arenas across the country with four artists um, anyway that uh, would, you know, set a paradigm and, 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 you know, even the name like Fest, like to me, it was like, you know, Woodstock obviously and other festivals, but this is the first time hip hop had its own festival. And now it's such a, a mainstream thing. Um, you know, that is not celebrated enough. It was marred at the time because there was some, um, some incidents that happened, like, you know, um, some gunplay, uh, it was blown out of proportion. You know, I'm not denying that things happen, but given the mainstream media coverage of it and like the, the, the change in like insurance and how difficult it became to like actually do the shows, it was blown out of proportion. And I think we can all like, you know, figure out why that was. But going back and looking at it for what it was, it like, it was a major, major celebration of hip hop and deserves like, you know, props for taking these people who seem inaccessible and take them on the road. And that, and that was the, the, the major impact as well. Yeah. I mean, just to fill in the map that way, and you're absolutely right. And, and with that said, I just, you gave me something that I want to say that needs to be said is, you know, the source magazine was still four years away from being born. Um, you know, I don't even know if at this point word up was out yet, but, you know, shout out to Nelson George and the like of people that really went to the mat and wrote about these records with the greatest of integrity in places like Billboard and the Village Voice. And, 
so on and so forth. And I know that those figures, those pioneers exist in all cities, but as you and I are two members of the media that hold our responsibility on the highest, you know, shout out to the people that really helped legitimize hip hop and its music as more than a fad. Yeah, man. So 1984, the greatest year in hip hop, greatest records, greatest artists laid the foundation for everything that came after it. Any debate? You know, I think that I think that the debates could be a few, Um, you know, and I think you kind of touched on one right there. You look at other years and I'll choose the two that I think come up the most often, 88 and 94. The hip hop map in the United States fills in a little bit more and globally, you know, 88, you've got the beginning of the Ghetto Boys here where I am in Houston. You've got two live crew in Miami. You've got two short up in the Bay um you know 94 even more so you've got dungeon family you know outcast you've got um you know artists all over uh the midwest and the south that are starting to make noise and get recognition by that point la has three or four different lanes to choose from the bay is diversified um so you have more more diversity and arguably arguably more quality um just given the volume of records that were coming out, both on the singles level, as well as obviously the albums. I think that's huge. Um, you know, you and I have talked about depth here. We've talked about Houdini and Run DMC putting out albums and the Fat Boys that people know beyond just what was fed to them, beyond the singles and the videos, which may or may not have even existed. Obviously, you get to 94. I think most hip hop heads know the words to probably every song on Ready to Die. You get to 88, you know, um, follow the leader. Like these are these are records that are treated um, the same way. Like early in the Beatles career, there might be a few joints on the album or the Rolling Stones. By the time you get to Sgt. Pepper, it's a lean back experience. So I think 84, that's a that's a blind spot. I'm not saying that. I'm just looking at the weaknesses. Um, and also, as I just alluded to, there's more resources by you know, 88, 94, 2000, 2010, pick a year, you've got more media, you've got more video, you've got longer samplers to make more interesting production. Um, you've got wordsmiths coming on in the mid 80s, you know, your, your, your Rock Kims, your Kanes, your G-Raps, your Cool Keiths that influence a generation after them. So there's that. But I, that being said, I still think that 84 has a lot of things going for it that no other year can have. And if you take it out of the equation, you get nothing. The house of cards falls apart. It truly is, you know, the watershed year for hip hop. Sounds like we've got a few more years to debate. 86? So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. But um, back to the present. Anything you want to talk about that happened in the last week? Yeah, man. We, um, we just talked about a lot of artists at the foundation of Def Jam. Um, you know, rest in peace to my man, Ricky Powell. Uh, you know, he was the photographer, I think came on in 85, 86, thanks to Bill Adler, who was a big brother and still is to me, the head of publicity for our director of publicity for Def Jam. Ricky shot, you know, so many of the iconic photos of not only Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and, you know, um, LL Cool J, but also your public enemies. He has some of the greatest photos of all time of Big L, of Easy e on the phone, rolling something up. Um, you know, Ricky was a complicated individual and I didn't know him well, but I knew him over the years and, um, you know, RIP. And I also want to give a rest in peace to Double K, um, Michael Turner from People Under the Stairs. And you and I were texting, um, you know, in the wake of his passing. I've been listening to a lot of 
you know, PUTFs. Um, but, but RIP, man, our, our, our heroes, our peers, they, um, they're reminding us all the time that, you know, we're mortal and, uh, just, it's a reminder to me and I hope everyone else, man, give, give the next person, give your heroes their flowers. Word, word. Um, speaking of flowers, I know you put this in the document too, but it looks like Russell Peters, um, world-renowned comedian and i don't know that he's as well known in the u.s as like he is globally but gigantic i mean this guy is one of the biggest comedians in the world but he's also an incredible hip-hop head like um um you know i've been to his house i've seen him um you know interact with like some like of the sharpest lyrical like assassins in the world like who are friends of his like the dude is major and he is doing a documentary on dnd studios um which you know people might not know, but home to the legendary DJ Premier for many years and DITC, Crates you know, Crew, click. And, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the the, the finest records in New York rap uh, from the you know early '90s through the um, late aughts came through that studio, um, and so um, I, I have no doubt that that Russell being the true hip hop fan that he is will do that incredible justice so very excited about that. yeah and i i'd be remiss not to give a shout out to the uh breaking adams podcast who broke that story they did a dope interview it's not very long 30 30 40 minutes with um doug you know the founder co-founder of dnd and uh that was a place i got to go and and russell peters is to your point just is somebody who's taken a platform and given a lot of opportunities to um hip-hop ogs i know when you and i did our podcast episode with lord finesse he was catching a flight that week um based on instagram finesse is still out there working with with you know russell and um russell's been really good to a lot of our heroes um you know and, and giving them platform and opportunity so i can't wait because i've been a dnd i think you have too right yeah yeah um that was that was the spot so in the dnd yeah it was crazy man um yeah, yeah, I've had I've had fun. Uh, I was in pre, with Primo on D and D a few times, so super dope. Legendary spot. I can still uh, I can still smell the cess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, I heard a, a real cool record that I added to the playlist this week. Um, Freddie Gibbs and Schoolboy Q, Gang Signs. Um, real soulful record. Um, another soulful record by Fat Joe. Damn, that's the joint. Yeah, uh, you want to talk about that one? Yeah, I mean, uh, Sunshine the Light by Fat Joe, DJ Khaled, and uh, uh, the co-producer of the song Amorphous. Um, man, it's just like if you were to take the perfect contemporary blend because you got your Luther Vandross on there and then you've got the um, a Rihanna remix. And it's cool because they cleared all the samples and they made, I mean, Joe, Joe is uh, ageless, man. He just keeps coming out with new and more stuff. And I know it's a it's a party record, it's a dance record, it's the you know windows down played in your car record, but it's the most I've liked a Joe record, um, you know, since the since the Jay Z uh, all the way up remix. He just keeps making hits, man. That dude, like, I mean, who would have known the dude who's got you know came out with Flow Joe and like you know, mm. um, you know, shit is real. Going back to DJ Premier, I'm sure that record was made in D and D, like uh, the, the Primo remix. Word. But, uh, who wouldn't who would think that that dude who was like such an underground cat would be like, just like, you know, just an unstoppable commercial force now with, with Cal. It's pretty crazy, but yeah, super dope. 
Yeah, there's um there's a record I'm going to omit because we have an upcoming conversation with its creator. I'll let our listeners guess who that might be. But there's three albums I just want to shout out that have dropped since we last did an episode that have been in heavy rotation for me. Uh, Madlib, um, you know, put out Sound Ancestors, um, and he did it. You know, it's a solo album under the Madlib name. Some people are saying it's the first. I struggle with that a little bit because Madlib has, you know, put out all of his beat conductor kind of volumes but this is on a higher level um you know it just seems like in the marketing push sound ancestors but he did it in part with fortet um who he trusted with a lot of kind of raw um beats there's some really good interviews in the new york times and npr on how it happened but you know madlib does something on the instrumental tip and i just enjoy it that has been in heavy rotation for me i also want to give a huge shout out to breezy bruin from the juggernauts um you and i spent a really great episode talking about mf doom um, whose history on the solo tip kind of started at Fondalum. My favorite thing besides Operation Doomsday that Fondalum put out is Clear Blue Skies by the Juggernauts. Um, a family of MCs, Breezy Bruin, Buddy Slim, and Queen Heroin out of the Bronx. This is Breezy's um, first solo album. People may know him from being the title character on Prince Paul's Prince Among Thieves, who did all that rapping. MC from the Bronx, who is just so, so, so talented. And... Um, he put a joint out called hindsight and it's just, it's a great lean back record. Very, very, very conceptual. Um, and you got black milk, DJ spinner, Marco Polo, a lot of, a lot of heads involved in it, but um, great, great album. And then lastly, Devin, the dude, who is another artist that um, maybe it's cause I'm in Texas right now, but Devin continues to prove that he can make um, phenomenal music, you know, 20 years after just trying to live, um, almost 30 years after the odd squad and his new uh, album is called soulful distance i think i have that title right kind of playing off of social distance and scarface is on there um slim thug big pokey like a lot of a lot of h-town legends um but devin um that that ability that he has to be melodic to kind of sing to kind of channel the blues in his raps while while rapping about wine weed and women um that's just been a lean back album for me. And I've heard a lot of other people say like, yo man, this more people need to be talking about it. So here I am. Yeah, man. Consistent, consistent dude. Been doing it for many, many years, you know? Um, so cool. What's your, what's your song of the week? After that harangue, man, I'm gonna give it up to Devin on the song discouraged. I sent it to you a couple days ago. That is uh, man. That's everything I love about the dude. What about you? Word. Uh, for me, it's adventures in the land of music dynasty, man. Like, uh, uh, to be honest, I, I just heard it for the first time last night, but, you know, most heads will know it instantly as the sample that powers uh, uh, Lucini by Camp Low. But the song is just a stone cold groove. Love it. Love Man, it. shout out to Ski Beats. Well, I, I was late in the game. You and I are both sample heads. I heard it last year on a, a Spotify mix of some kind, and I was like taken aback because I'd never heard the original. And uh, man, that's that's the one. Yeah, no, it's just a great one. We are 84. Yeah, 84, man. Look forward to doing many more of these. Absolutely. Yo, you take care of yourself. Everyone out there, do the same. Yep. Later. Peace.